0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. Please turn to Genesis chapter 14. we're in our series through the book of Genesis specifically talking about Abram or Abraham and his life and so we're picking up today kind of in the middle of a story a story that's already been going on and we're going to we're going to pop into it starting in Genesis 14 chapter or chapter 14 verse 17 and you can follow along in your bible or on the screen behind me <clears throat> Since this is picking up in the middle of the story, you've got pronouns here, and you've got to wonder, well, who is he actually talking about, right? So I'll kind of fill in the blanks as we read. Then after his return, that's Abram, after Abram's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abram, gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear, you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol and Mamre, let them take their share. This is the word of the Lord. So, Melchizedek. If all we had was this passage in Genesis 14, we might read right over all of this and think, well, okay, that's kind of random this Melchizedek guy, whatever, right? If all we had was this passage, we might be tempted to think, not sure where this Melchizedek comes from, what he has to do with anything, whatever. It's one of those big long names that the Old Testament's filled with. I don't know. Keep reading. But we can't say whatever with Melchizedek because this is not the only passage of Scripture that we have about Melchizedek. God brings up Melchizedek two more times, once in Psalm 110 and many times in the book of Hebrews. We've read one of those, Hebrews chapter five, and we'll read some more later. We'll get to those passages in a minute. First of all, I want us to stick to what Moses tells us right here in Genesis 14. Genesis 14 isn't mainly about Melchizedek. It's about Abram. What's going on here with Abram? Well, remember from the last couple of weeks that Abram has come out of his homeland. He's come into the land of Canaan. This is the place that we would call Palestine or Israel today. God told Abram to get up and to go, to leave his home and his father's house. And Abram obeyed. He took all that he had and his whole household and he walked and walked and walked and walked. Thousands of miles, it must be, until he came to the place that God showed him. And remember that as a part of his household, part of his entourage that that he's traveling with and going from one place to the other, was his nephew, Lot. Now, these men, remember, were herdsmen, they kept animals. Much of their wealth was made up of the animals they owned, and their animals had to eat. They had to graze on grass. And eventually, a fight breaks out between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Too many sheep, not enough grass, right? And so Abram comes to Lot, and Abram says this. This is back in chapter 13. He says, "'Please let there be no strife "'between you and me, nor between my herdsmen "'and your herdsmen, for we are brothers.' Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, I'll go to the left. Remember what Abram, or do you remember what Lot does? Lot says, okay, and he looks out over all the land, and he looks and he looks and he sees over there, down in the, in the valley where the river is. What does he see? He sees green, right? He sees grass, and he says, "Okay, Uncle Abram, I'll take that." Abram says, "Fine. Go for it. It's all yours." And he takes the rest. Lot takes the good green lush valley of the Jordan. Abraham Abram takes what's left. And right after that, right after Lot is walking away, Lot's walking down All of his herds are following with him. He's going down to the green valley where the grass is. God comes and talks to Abram. Here's what he says. This is chapter 13, verses 14 to 17. Just listen to this. God comes to Abram right after Lot leaves, and he says this. Now, Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever." It's all yours, Abram. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. In other words, you can't even count them. No way to count how many descendants Abram will have. And he says to him, Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. God promises to Abram, a land and a people, a big land and a people that could never even be numbered. And the rest of history is the unfolding of those promises. We are here today, we are here today trusting God, believing the gospel, worshiping Christ because God is keeping and will keep his promises to Abram. We are the dust. It's a little bit of it. But here we are. Now, we'll talk more about all of that in weeks to come. Now, you'll remember from last week that when Lot chose the good land, the green land, he was also choosing what? The wicked land. The wicked land. He chose to move down to the rich place, down towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Holy Spirit tells us through Moses in Genesis 13, 13, The men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. That's what Sodom was like. And Lot moves down among them. And then later he actually moves into the city and he lives in Sodom. He makes his home there. And as a citizen of Sodom, Lot gets caught up in the political trouble of the city. So when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is what we looked at last week, when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and two other kings decide to rebel against Chedorlaomer, the king who had subjugated that whole territory, Lot gets caught up in that too. He can't escape it. When Chedorlaomer comes and fights against the rebel kings, Lot and his family are captured and carried off as captives. And you remember from last week what Abram does. Abram comes to the rescue. And he comes, he raises an army, he fights against these kings, he rescues Lot and all of his family and all of his stuff, and he brings them back. Now let's think about that for a second. There's a couple of points that I think are important to see with that whole story of Abram and Lot, Abram rescuing Lot, Lot getting carried away as a captive. If God brings judgment on America, right? God's people will probably suffer because of it, just like Lot did. Lot was a righteous man. The New Testament uh, says of righteous, or says of Lot, he's righteous. It says like four times in a row, he's righteous. Lot. So the New Testament calls Lot a righteous man. Now Lot has problems right? Uh, So do I, right? So do you. But he's a righteous man. But nevertheless, when Lot's city, Sodom, is caught up in political and military trouble, Lot is not somehow magically left out of that. He's not magically immune to that because he's he's a righteous man. No. Lot and his family have to suffer the fate of their city, their nation, and the same is true of us. Don't think that because you trust God and try to live a righteous life that you and I will automatically be spared the trouble that is likely going to come to this country, America, within 20 years. Okay? I believe there's trouble coming that's, that's big. And if it comes, we'll be caught up in it because here we are, just like Lot was there, Right? Don't be naive about that. If you see trouble on the horizon, it's not faithlessness to prepare for that, to think ahead about what might be coming and what might, what, what that might mean for you and for your family. The other thing about this is Abram's response. Abram is not a pacifist, is he? Abram, Abram has a has a small army in his household, right? Abram's faith is not incompatible with Abram's ability and willingness to raise a small army, go to battle and fight to rescue Lot. Abram is not a pacifist. And the Bible does not teach us to be pacifists either. Now all of that brings us to what happens after Abram rescues Lot. After Abram rescues Lot and all of Lot's family and all of Lot's stuff, he comes and brings him back to the valley, to the green place, the rich place, back to the city where he was taken from. And what happens? Well, two kings come out to meet him on his return, right? The king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom is Bera. The king of Salem is Melchizedek. Now, we know that Salem is another name for Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is the king of Salem or the king of Jerusalem. Now, look what happens when these two kings come out to meet Abram. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. The king of Sodom comes out, but the king of Salem brings the party, okay? He brings the feast. He brings the welcome. That's what's going on here. Melchizedek com- welcomes Abram with royal largesse. He's he generous, he's kind. He lays out a feast for Abram and all of his house and all of his men. He doesn't just bring out a little crust and a little thimble, right? This is him laying a feast bread and wine, and everything else that goes with it. Now you see nothing of that from the king of Sodom. Nothing of that at all. And it was the king of Sodom who benefited from Abram's rescue mission. It wasn't Melchizedek. Melchizedek had nothing lost in that battle that Abram brought back. It was was the king of Sodom. In fact, you actually get the impression that the king of Sodom is grudging, resentful, and greedy. That's what you'd expect, right? After all, he's the king of Sodom. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Well, that I mean, when you first look at that, it looks like a generous offer, right? Uh, Just give me all the people back and you can keep all the stuff. But no, I don't think it is at all. I think it's actually a grudging offer. It's, a, it's not an open-hearted, open-handed offer. It's, it has strings attached. Now, what makes me think that? We'll keep reading. Look at verse 22 and 23. Abram said to the king of Sodom, after the king of Sodom, makes this oh, great show of a generous offer, right? Just give me the people back and you take all the stuff. Here's what Abram says. I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. Abram knows what's going on with this king, King Barah. He knows that there are strings attached, right? He, knows, he, he doesn't want Barah's money. He Abram doesn't want the wealth of Sodom. God has made promises to Abram. God has made promises to Abram that God would bless Abram. And at this point in Abram's life, he believes it. And he keeps, he, he, he takes God at his word. God will keep those promises. I don't need the wealth of Sodom. I don't want Bera, the king of Sodom, to be able to say, I have made Abram rich. Abram doesn't want to be in the pocket of Bera. He doesn't want to owe anything to him. He doesn't want anyone to be able to say, oh, sure, Abram's Abram's rich. Well, yeah, but we all know why Abram's rich. Abram's rich because the king of Sodom made him rich. You know, it was a payoff. The wealth of Sodom is dirty money. The wealth of Sodom is what the New Testament calls sordid gain. Remember that term? When the New Testament is talking about officers in, the, in, in Christ's church, deacons, pastors, elders, they may not be fond, it says, of sordid gain. Right, easy money, money that's kind of shady, money that uh, has strings attached. You know, bribes. Abram says, "I don't, I don't want your money, King Bera." Now let's think about these two kings. King Bera is the king of Sodom. King Melchizedek, the king of Salem or Jerusalem. What do we know about Sodom? We know a lot about Sodom. Genesis 13 13. The men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Genesis 18 20. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Exceedingly grave. Really, really bad. We know from Genesis 18 when God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember this story? We'll get to it someday. And he says, But Lord, if there are 50 righteous men, righteous people in the city of Sodom, would you please spare it? God says, Sure. And he keeps going and he keeps whittling it down and whittling it down and whittling it down. He gets down to 10. Remember this? If there are ten righteous men in the city of Sodom, will you spare it? And God says, yes, for ten, I'll spare it. Well, what happens? It doesn't get spared. Which means there weren't even ten, not even ten righteous men in, the, in this city. There's only one. It was a Lot. Ezekiel 16:49 says this about Sodom. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Wealth, ease, the idolatry of pleasure that comes out of all of that. We know from Genesis 19 that when God sent those messengers, they were actually angels, to rescue Lot. The men of Lot are beating down the door. Because they want to rape them. This is Sodom. Sodomy has come to mean throughout Scripture and throughout history the worst kind of degenerate perversion. And for good reason. And Pastor Bailey warned us last week about living in the midst of Sodom because we do. We live in Sodom. What sin does Bloomington, our city, what sin does Bloomington revel in and promote and celebrate? Well, sodomy. It's everywhere. It's in the the courthouse. It's in the city council chambers. It's in the county council chambers. It's in the public schools. It's on the street corners. It's everywhere. It's at the university. Homosexuality, sexual perversion, all the wealth and ease and hedonism and pleasure that feed all of that, this is Bloomington. Here we are in the middle of it. But look at this. In the middle of this wicked land and this wicked culture, Sodom, right? There's another king, King Melchizedek. You remember Pastor Bailey said a week or two ago that the, the king of Sodom's name, Bera, that name means, do you remember? Evil. So the king of Sodom is King Evil, Right? But Melchizedek also means something. Hebrews 7.2 tells us what the name Melchizedek means. Melchizedek, it says, was first of all, by the translation of his name, here's what the Hebrew word means, Melchizedek, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Salem means peace. So the king of Sodom is the king of evil, but the king of Jerusalem is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But there they are. They're together. They're living in the same land. They're breathing the same air. They're surrounded by the same culture, the king of evil and the king of righteousness. And they both come out to meet Abram. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that God has his people. God has his people. Even in the middle of a wicked day and a wicked land, God has his people. It is very easy for us to look around and look around, feel overwhelmed by the evil of our day, by the evil of our land, by the evil of our city, to see that all and be dismayed, right? To be to begin to believe that this is impossible. It's impossible for, for us to be righteous in this day. It's impossible for us to be righteous in this place. It's impossible for us to raise our children in the middle of all of this. But no. Here's a man, a man who worships God Most High, in the middle of, pervasive idolatry all around him. Here's a man whose name is king of righteousness. Here's a man who comes out to greet and to welcome and to feed Abram, the friend of God, the father of all the faithful. Do not despair. God has his people, even here and even now. God has his people. Do not fall into the Into the temptation of Elijah. Do you remember Elijah the prophet? Elijah the prophet has this amazing victory over the priests of Baal. Remember that story? It was in 1 Kings. And he comes off of that experience and he's, you know, the next day, what? He's depressed. It's like every pastor is on Monday morning. It's true, okay. And he's he just, you know, woe is me. So 1 Kings 19, listen to this. He goes and he hides in a cave. And this is what happens. He came in there to a cave and lodged there and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one left. It's all evil, it's all bad, it's all gone to hell, right? And I'm the only one left. What does God say to that? No, Elijah, you're wrong. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Get up and get back to work. As long as you think you are the only one or we are the only ones, We will be paralyzed, we will circle the wagons, we will batten down the hatches, we will hide, and we will make ourselves useless for the kingdom of God. Remember, we will not love Bloomington if we what? If we hate Bloomington. Seems to make sense to me. Remember what <laughs> that great theologian Yoda said. <laughs> Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering, and that leads to the dark side. And we're not here to build the dark side, we're here to build the kingdom of God. Fear, hate, no. Now let's take a moment or two to delve a little deeper into Melchizedek. This is what Tim said I was gonna do, so here we go. As I said, we wouldn't naturally make a big deal of Melchizedek if all we had was this little account in Genesis 14, but we do have more. We have Psalm 110, for example. Look at Psalm 110. You can open up in your Bible, you can look on the screen. The New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than any other passage in in the Old Testament, okay? The New Testament thinks Psalm 110 is really important. Quotes it all over the place. The the New Testament assures us that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. Read it with me. Let me read it for you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath, he will judge among the nations, he will fill them with corpses, he will shatter the chief men over a broad country, he will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. That is what Melchizedek is, he is, we've seen that he is a king, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, but Melchizedek is more than a king, he's also a priest, Moses already told us that, Genesis fourteen eighteen Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. And as a priest, we see in Genesis 18 that Melchizedek blesses Abram. That's what priests do. And so we come back to Psalm 110, where the Holy Spirit says of Jesus Christ, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, does that help? <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Well, we have to keep going on into the book of Hebrews to figure out what that means. Things start to get weird with Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. The weird part about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews is in Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. Just follow along as I read this, or you can follow in your Bible. Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So what's with that? It says Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy. No beginning of days, nor end of life, made like the Son of God. What in the world is that? That has given rise to all kinds of speculation about Melchizedek, right? Some people think, all through the history of the church that you know Melchizedek must have been an angel, some kind of supernatural being, not a man, but an angel. Other people have thought, no, he's not an angel. This is actually Jesus Christ himself. Many people have thought Melchizedek is uh, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before Jesus took on flesh, right? a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus before he was made flesh of the Virgin Mary. So that here's what they'd say, you know, he had to be some kind of supernatural being without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days, end of life, made like the Son of God. What else could that possibly mean? Now, I do not believe that Melchizedek was a supernatural being at all. He was a king, he was a priest, but he was a man, just like us. Now, John Calvin has something to say about this whole idea that Melchizedek was some kind of supernatural being, either an angel or the pre-incarnate Christ. I'm going to pull a Tim Bailey on you and read it to you. Okay, here's what John Calvin says about this idea that, this is, that Melchizedek is a supernatural being. You ready? That is a lot of hooey. <laughs> See that? That's what it says right there. That is a lot of hooey. So, What does it all mean? Well, to make sense of Melchizedek, we have to make sense of the book of Hebrews. And really, I mean, the book of Hebrews is long, but it's not complicated. It's really pretty simple. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is all about Jesus. It's all about the fact that the Old Testament is filled with types and shadows of Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. But Jesus is greater than all the types and shadows. He's greater than the prophets, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the angels, he's greater than the tabernacle, he's greater than the sacrifices. God put all of that in place to point his people forward to Jesus. And Jesus is greater than the priesthood of the old covenant. Now he's greater than the priesthood of the old covenant for all kinds of reasons. He's sinless, the priest of the old covenant covenant aren't sinless. When they offer sacrifices, they have to offer sacrifices for their own sins, right? But Jesus is sinless. He is God. And one of the things that means is that he is eternal. He'll never die. Those old covenant priests kept dying all the time, right? He always needed new ones. And his sacrifice is not a bull or a lamb. His sacrifice is himself, Jesus is the great high priest that all the Old Testament's pointing forward to. But you see, that's a problem. That's a problem. Why? Because the Old Testament priests are all from the tribe of Levi, right? That is the law of the Old Testament. You can't be a priest if you're not from the tribe of Levi, you have places in the Old Testament where things get really dark um, and start falling apart and all kinds of people get ordained as priests who aren't Levites and it's an abomination to God and he, he hates it. But Jesus wasn't a Levite. According to the flesh, he was of the tribe of Judah, right? Descended from David. So all these newly converted Jews, that's who the book of Hebrews is written to. People who are Jews, they'd come out of all that old covenant system, they knew the law, but they've become Christians. But they can't figure out, what. how can Jesus be a priest? How can he be better than the Levitical priests if he's not a Levite? Answer. He's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Different kind of priesthood, different requirements. Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. Psalm 10 says the Messiah would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That means there's another legitimate priesthood. It started with Melchizedek, it ended with Jesus. And this is where the weird stuff about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews starts to make sense. Was Melchizedek a priest because of who his father and mother were? No. Well, that had everything to do with who was a priest in the Old Testament. Right? Show me the line. Show me the genealogy. Show me the blood. Show me the relatives. We don't know who Melchizedek's father and mother were. He was without father, without mother. We don't know who they were. It doesn't matter. It's not that he plopped down out of heaven, you know. No, we just don't know who they were. He was without genealogy, he says. His priesthood is a different kind of priesthood. It's not based on being a Levite. But you'll say, yeah, but Hebrews also says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What does that mean? It simply means we have no record of, of Melchizedek's line in either direction. We don't know where he came from, who his forefathers were, we don't know who's, who his descendants are, because it doesn't matter. It's not the point with Melchizedek. He's a different kind of priest. He plops down in Genesis 14, then he's gone, until he shows up again in Psalm 110, and then again in the book of Hebrews, but his priesthood is God-ordained just like Jesus' priesthood is God-ordained. And therefore, it is better, it is greater than the long line of priests in the Old Testament. That's what I think all the weird stuff about Melchizedek means. Now, what is that to all of us? What is that to us? It's everything to us. It's everything to us. Jesus, just like Melchizedek, our Lord Jesus Christ is both a king and a priest. And we need both. We need a priest. We have hated God's law, haven't we? We have hated his character. We have rebelled against him, we deserve nothing more than to die for our sins and to suffer God's righteous anger in an eternal hell. That's what we deserve. That's what every one of us deserves. And our only hope is to have someone step between us and God to step between us and the righteous wrath of God. We need a priest. We need blood. We need someone to step between us and turn God's wrath away. And that is exactly what our Lord Jesus has done. That is exactly what he is. He's a priest. He is the great high priest. Hebrews 7:26 says this, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is the priest who offers up himself and he turns God's wrath away from his people. But we need more than a priest, we also need a king. If all we had was a priest, we would still be defenseless against the enemy of our soul. We would still be prone to wander. We would be prone to fall we would be easy prey for Satan, the roaring lion who always is looking for someone to destroy. We don't just need a priest to cover our sins and to turn God's wrath away, we need a king. We need a champion. We need a defender. We need to be governed. We need to be corrected and strengthened in our obedience. We need to be fed. We need a king. And in our Lord Jesus, we have both a priest and a king. We have one who both canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Cross. That's Jesus as a priest. And one who disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. That's Jesus as a king. And this table speaks to us of both. He offered himself. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that he could intercede for us, so that he could stand between us and God. He is our great high priest, and he declares his priesthood to us every time we eat this supper. We remember the sacrifice that he offered up on our behalf. And he comes out and meets us. He lays a table out for us, a table of bread and wine. He is our benevolent and gracious king. Just like Melchizedek came out and met Abram with bread and wine, Jesus comes and meets us, lays the table out for us, feeds us, strengthens us welcomes us into fellowship with him. And he declares his kingship to us every time we eat this supper. Do you know Jesus Christ as both your priest and your king? Simply one or the other will not do. You can't have half a Jesus. You can't take him as your priest, the one who cleanses you from the guilt of your sins and then stiff-arm him as your king, the one who commands you and demands your allegiance and your obedience. You can't have half of Jesus. Do you know him both as your priest and your king? All of God's promises of blessing are yours if you do. forgiveness of sins the credit of Jesus' righteousness to your account adopted as a son welcomed into his throne room welcomed into his kingdom given everything you need for life and godliness it's all yours if you'll take Jesus as both your king and your priest and all of God's promises of destruction are yours if you don't. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to your gracious and kind provision, Jesus Christ, our King and our Priest. And I pray that we would Turn to him, trust him, love him, submit to him, obey him, take refuge in him, be fed by him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.